The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today we bring you part two of Sean Patrick Hazlett's discussion with Charles E. Gannon about the new Kane Riordan book, Protected Species. Let's take a listen. All right, so earlier you said, well, you didn't say exactly this, but I'm going to transliterate it for you in military speak. Move, shoot, communicate, right? It was like, as a former cavalry officer, they they kind of pounded that into us, and it's true. Now, they're making their way toward this location that is like, for lack of a better word, essentially a fortress, where in the sense that it's cavern, they have long, wide-ranging... Uh, you know, they could see very far because it w- has all these warrens and all these places. How does that play into the story? Well, this is where, as I was saying, things don't decay very quickly. They also, um, I don't want to give it away, but there's evidence that some of the things they've seen in their other travels uh, connect old events there to the past of this place. Because in addition to however well preserved the um, the uh, uh, um, the the materials in this this buried complex um, are uh, by by dint of the fact that there are not a lot of there are not a lot of you know vermin that would would be down here uh, and there's no water really um, mm-hmm. there's there's other indications that there are other ways that things have been preserved, which they believe they've seen elsewhere, which tells them that this is in the, well, in the same way that obviously somebody visited earth or somebody visited a planet with that already had humans on it in order to generate the majority of the population of this place. So no surprise, but, uh, it's yet another indication that there are certain, um, there are certain themes that uh, and awarenesses that were generated in earlier circumstances in let's say books particularly books four book four uh, kane's mutiny uh are sort of uh, popping up again here and for those of for those folks uh, and this is a i guess another offshoot um will also uh show any who thought that the entire murphy's lawless arc was just some sort of side exploitation gig that is very much not the case as people will begin to see increasingly in this one um but uh yeah so and you know it's it's there are a couple of long expanses in that but for the most part that Mm -hmm. complex is kind of uh, surprise it has a surprisingly false small footprint but what's unusual about it is that these are not natural caverns at all um and uh and let's just say that this is where in a sense um after after almost a novel and a half of having to innovate and <laughs> being and being odd odd folks out in an environment that um some of their skills prepared them for but not really and they had an awful lot of ignorance finally when they get in this place they jump to the head of the class they have a tendency to understand more of what they're seeing 
than even than even some pretty well placed local experts. And I I I I won't say more than that, except to say that uh, it it is. Um, I'd say it it's it's fair to say that the writing is on the wall. Some of the ways that uh, they may why the next book, they've been endangered species in the first book, they're protected mm -hmm. species in this book, and in the next book they're killer species. The fourth book is dominant species. So um, so I think it's safe to say that. Um, a sensitive read of this book will show you why that inflection point may be approaching. All right, now I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So fur piles, what does this word mean to you? And why is it in this book? <laughs> it sounds like something would happen at a Renaissance fair, doesn't it? Um, and 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 in a way, perhaps it 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 shares a, a vaguely similar root in that a fur pile is um, is literally just an into a bunch of. Let's go back to what I was talking when you asked me earlier. Why is this planet mm -hmm. the way this is? Um, and I talked about those extraordinary extremes of temperature. Um, when you are traveling, even in the height of summer, remember that it's going to go beneath freezing. Um, these folks start in book six, uh, in, endangered species starts just as winter is ending and turning into spring. It is mm -hmm. cold. And indeed, uh, so what the fur piles are essentially are a way of, of surviving of, 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 uh, of collecting, of collecting bodily warmth. And um, although you might think that the, uh, you know, in most places, <laughs> sleeping deep inside the fur pile would sound like a claustrophobic experience, when you are on the outer, on the outer layer of one and the temperature is well below zero and you do not have, you know, any of the, any of the modern, you know, layered pseudo down sort of, uh, of, of, of winter gear to sleep in. This is very unpleasant. And if you're also dealing with, it's difficult to get enough calories, it's difficult to get enough diversity. Um, mm -hmm. They're, uh, you know, not for nothing, but they can't, they, in the in the sixth book, they remarked on the, um, the, uh, the, the, the stink of ketosis in the streets. You will notice in the second book, no one's even talking about it anymore. <laughs> yes, partly because I made the point, but, Partly because when you live here long enough, you know, you, you kind of stop smelling that sort of stuff when it's coming out of you too. They become nose blind. Um, there, there will be funny scenes uh, in the future <laughs> uh, where they encounter people with more balanced diets. Um, but, uh, but so when you, when you consider all those things, it, it all gets down to calories and remember calories we think of it in terms of nutrition but calories really is about heat it's a it's mm -hmm. a, you know calories is a measure of heat and um so so fur piles are absolutely imperative to survival even when you're in shelter even when you're in these sort of um uh, mud brick you know quasi domes that are the that are the uh, the sort of um the predominant housing in in cities so, so to speak um 
when you're on the when you're on the wastes and remember again if, if the only way you have cover from the wind is if you find a a, a, a terrain feature there's no right. there's no there are no woods there's no bushes you don't get any of that you you know it's find a find a rock that's about as good as you're going to do um you really need that heat that's not and i could not see a way in which it would not evolve um particularly amongst quote the lower classes uh, the lower classes being pretty much everybody but the zakao and their the zakai and their hand picked flunkies um so uh there's this moment when <laughs> it's a very sustained moment right. when when certain of our uh let those those of the survivors the the kane so self-styled crew c-r-e-w-e -E, uh who have more to do when they think of contact they are not thinking so much of cultural exchange as as they are body blows um those folks have a tendency to think oh well this is all about who you hook up with <laughs> <laughs> And, whoops <laughs> yeah they are well they're not in those they and actually the uh, this is one of the things also that that makes the uh the locals absolutely convinced that they are mm -hmm. that really they must be outcasts from a um as a cow lieges um primary force the zakao lieges will keep humans who come from an unusual environment that they haven't, that our, our folks here haven't yet, they've only heard of it. They, it's called the beyond. Some people think it's underground. Some people think it's like, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, a lost Island who knows what it is, but they clearly have more initial facility with technology. They are, uh, and, and they are sort of the Praetorian guard come Janissaries of, of the really powerful, uh, Zakao lieges and the and the suzerains who are above the lieges. Mm -hmm. um, not every city has a suzerain. They're very very rare. Uh, every city has a bunch. Almost every suzerain worth their salt, and that's actually quite valuable on this planet. Mm -hmm. Unless you're by the sea coast, getting salt ain't easy. Um, uh, it, almost every powerful suzerain is going to have a liege, a senior liege in each city one in each city and and each one of those senior lieges is almost certain to have these uh folks who call themselves reapers and they are they are graded into harrows and scythes and they are uh sort of if you, everybody all the locals think that the survivors are those why mm -hmm. because they have self-concealed suits that are miraculous at resisting all sorts of blows uh, and they can seal them up and sleep in them without any discomfort. What? What? <laughs> you know, this is this is unheard of. Um, so they figured, you know, these guys are so so. In essence, that's one of the reasons why it takes the survivors so long to learn that this ain't about hooking up, because only when they realize how cold it is to sleep mm -hmm. sleep out there. Because at the beginning of this book, there is this. There's a, a key decision made, and it's a, it's a it's a decision. It's one of the decision that that stimulates the most debate of any they've had so far. They have Dornani manufactured vacuum suits for humans. Now the Dornani, a lot of their technology still looks like magic to us, right? And some of the things these suits can do, including selective hardening, 
against impacts and things like that are just, you know, it's it's not beyond the realm of understanding, but it is certainly beyond the realm of easy replication for humanity at this time. And they're the first ones to really experience it. Um, there's a decision that is very, very closely made, which is we can't wear these all the time anymore. You, We wear these long enough and they're going to get dinged up to the point yeah. that they no longer do what they do. And if they ever find it, remember, they left a ship back up in orbit. And in in uh, in early in the last book, there's indication that there may be another derelict well out, like a light second or so out. Um, if they're going to have if they ever find any sort of weird way to get back up topside, they need pressure integrity suits to be able to conduct EVA ops. So. So Kane and a couple of others are based, they have to make this really hard sell, which is the stuff that's been keeping us alive, keeping us comfortable, keeping, we got to put that in wraps. This is not popular. And that is when they have the big, you know, there's nothing like understanding what somebody else is going through than having to go through it yourself. And all of a sudden they are having, now they've got, they've got better furs than most of these do. Because different different animals have different hides and different furs, and they wind up having really high quality ones. But even so, like holy hell, and that follows, and and that sort of is emerging at the same time that they have now enough enough exposure to them, and they they're dealing also with issues that they have a disproportionate as they're picking up more indigenous that they meet. They're actually not taking them out of community so much as these are defeated foes. Who, when they realize that they're, first of all, on this planet, if you're a foe and you're defeated and you have an opportunity to join the victor, you do it. Particularly yeah, or you when die. you're way the hell yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And then they discover it's like they make promises to us and they keep them. Yeah, this is like, this, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? This is like, this is the stuff of legend. And, and still they remain fairly small. Um, what is happening though, is that the male female ratio is also, they came out of a city and for a variety of reasons, uh, they lost a lot of, a, a, this has, this has nothing to do with anything except for the fact that if you sound like, if it sounds like the Zakao are people or creatures you would hate and that they would create hateful systems, then you may rest assured that uh, of that assertion and one of the ways in which that is is that the zakao strongly strongly um frown upon any of the humanoid uh, if you will varieties uh allowing women females to be anything but essentially forms of agricultural production and offspring mm -hmm. uh, which to them is an investment uh easy to say the humans are they can't even get their heads around that at first that that has become so so universally abhorrent and frowned upon in in even in the most you know sort of uh insulated and and uh, uh you know sort of uh uh, per, uh 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 parochial um cultures of earth um that this is they 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 don't they there are other things because they see also in this i won't give this away there are reasons why some some women actually do 
are trained for war and usually are very good at it um, mm -hmm. and are very often the smartest. Why that is, and another thing, they don't understand why those, they make, a, they make an assumption. Well, for whatever reason, not a lot of females choose this. Uh, or are capable or allowed or, uh, you know, maybe who their dad was. No, no. The reasons are as brutal as the environment. Um, and uh, the, the reason I get into all this is that the, the humans assume that sexual tension is going to be rising in the fur piles. What they don't realize is the fur piles, sexual, uh, you know, making those sort of liaisons is a a deeply secondary consideration. As a matter of fact, before which fur pile you're in, just getting in one, the most important mm -hmm. thing is, do you have a partner who will sleep back to back with you? You could trust, uh, right? Exactly, because that's really important. Um, sex is a deeply, deeply distant consideration. Um, and this is a, this is a moment when, uh, when our, uh, our, uh, our, our survivors um, sort of, they have to once again turn their heads in a, in a very different direction in order to understand that. Um, and as a matter of fact, the the, the locals are kind of are, are perplexed because on the one hand they're very open when they have sex, they're very open about the sex, and they they see they don't understand what's going on. I mean, the fact that you're dealing with still the survivors are part of a command of a command structure that is following mostly military lines, informal because of the the unusually polyglot nature of it but the, you know they there there are no less than three occasions where major characters say no they must be those sort of celibate warriors we hear about <laughs> you know because there's no <laughs> sign there is no physical sign that there's anything going on as it turns out there is a little bit of that going on but but it is the entire issue of of you know the the responsibility of command and the and the entire idea of 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 relationships with a lower that do not happen within a, the same ascent essential rank rank range band uh, are still very alive and the locals have absolutely no concept of that. So you've got all sorts of really for me fun um, and in some ways tragic and painful um, miscommunication and misunderstanding that has been going on in the last book that sort of uh, comes to the surface finally in this book, because in the act of training them, you could say the locals are training the survivors too. Well, there's actually, so there's two implications of something you said a little bit earlier about when they conserve their suits, right? And there's another debate, which I thought was interesting too, because you know I think somebody, I can't remember which character, made the argument but it was you know like we need to keep these people between us and the problem and that led into a whole other it's a whole other interesting philosophical debate but it's also a practical debate too and then that's that's point one point two was when they're finding some of this indigenous armor there are some problems with some of it particularly the best types of armor so if you could, you know, address I'll, one I'll and two. On those with as much oblique precision as I may. Uh, exactly. Um, the the uh, the first one, which is um, 
one of the things they're seeing is that we need we need better one of the things that they're trying to do is they most of the people that that wind up surviving um, are very often from the lower end of the of the uh, social ladder and therefore come with very little of their own equipment so they are upgraded mm -hmm. as much as they can from what essentially boils down to whether it whether you want to call it skirmish or battlefield salvage that's where a lot of it is coming from that which isn't broken that which isn't etc cetera, etc cetera. and conversation comes up particularly when they're saying well we've got to take these vac suits we can't use them as armor anymore we got to preserve them because it's not just the armor the thing is that they have a built-in the hud on this on the helmet is gives you essentially eye selected zoom thermal imaging uh thermal imaging that can coordinate with motion sensors the reason they have never been taken by surprise is because they have one of those running and that is still the one thing they're willing to make an exception for overnight uh essentially you know uh, whoever Whoever is the machine operator who is awake, and there is always one in every watch, is, you know, go ahead, hide. There's nothing on the, there's not, anything that comes is going to move and is going to be thermal. You know, so having three minutes to prepare is a whole lot better than, you know, new sound beyond the firelight. Um, that's a, that's a, a big, a big advantage. Um mm -hmm. So they're putting all of that away because even then, the other thing, as people will have seen, these all of those sensors, when you think about them, now I'm going to say, be, be many stages of technology beyond us. Could you be so stupid as to overlook the opportunities for smart targeting, you know, latent in those systems, which leads to a lot of these, what the locals consider to be, they must be, you know, they must be the favorite of the gods. You know, what else What else could do this? Um, I mean, we can paint targets. Imagine what somebody who can make our technology of 100 years from now look pretty primitive. Imagine what that can do. Um, and all of this stuff is going to be under wraps, you know, during the day, potentially, except for special need and, uh, and only one suit at night. Um, and so the, the idea comes up, we got to really up our, we're, we're speaking in terms of locally produced armor, mm -hmm. we got to up our game. So that becomes a major issue. And the, the first thing you're talking about, which is the really, one of my favorite debates in this book is because it is such, it's a debate that I'm not sure a lot of people are going to be comfortable with. I am sure it's going to spark all sorts of, of feelings. Uh, I am going to say that actually um, Kane is not an early adopter uh, of this, uh, but, but this is a moment where one of the things they're getting used to is they, it has often been said by people in the undeveloped or underdeveloped world that what we consider problems are almost laughable to them. The same thing is true when you are talking about this planet with the degree to which humans are the underdogs, fragile. Um, uh, you know, this is a really, really, I think gritty is almost an understatement of an environment. Um, and when somebody says, you know, the armor I'm talking about isn't a suit. I'm talking about we have to 
protect ourselves with bodies, other mm -hmm. bodies. The, this, this then gets into a really, really heated uh, debate. Some people get really sharp and sharp about this. Ultimately, though, the, one of the things that I think in this environment, I don't know that this would be true in our environment, but in this environment, the idea is, well, the thing that would make them better armor is actually not to get them to stand in the way. It is to make them more proficient. If we mm -hmm. can make them more proficient, that's good for us and it's good for them. If we go down, they still come out net benefit. If part of their job is to make sure that there's stuff that doesn't get to us, that's all the well. But that's actually, when you think of it, in, in a way, um, what they're doing is they're having the same sort of debate that is that occurs early on in any military empire as far back as we know, which is originally in primitive tribes, the difference between warrior and soldier. One of them, warriors almost always have to be led from the front by the leader who is usually, and, and at this point, for a, for a warrior tradition, you can almost map in. I mean, I, I shudder at the way we map in the sort of alpha, beta, gamma, blah, blah, but humans don't operate on, on that sort of, even wolves, it turns out, don't operate on that right. simple a pattern but the big the leader has to lead they got to be in the point by the time you are managing groups of more than a few dozen the problems with that begin to show up in in a very very large way um you might say that one of the the reasons why harold you know what wh what happened in 1066 everything indicates that harold at at um, at hastings was still not fully divorced from the sort of almost Norse idea of lead from the front. He could have been further back than he was. The, Norm mm -hmm. the Normans had better command communication. They were, they had more horse. They, they had a, but also, you know, it's, it's like no one was going to no. there's a, there's a command post. You, you need to keep the brains beyond the easy reach of the opponent. And that's kind of, they are revisiting, inventing, if you were reinventing that decision made at some point by every, uh, by almost every empire that went from being a band into a discernible military um, for just so many reasons. I mean, you're also doing something else as this was in the case of those militaries. They were careful. They ultimately realized that once somebody gets you need to take people off the line almost at their prime, just a little past their prime, because who's going to train? Institutional mm -hmm. knowledge is too valuable to be out where, where the metal meets the meat, so to speak. And this is, and this is what they are sort of, there's a, there's a lot of, if you will, military thought, almost military evolution that sort of um, just compressed you know, down into into a high density set of questions and crises that they have to address, um, and so the physical armor is you know the, is uh, is also important. And to your point, the Zakai hide. I think I, I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like um, like somebody somebody likens it to like trying to run a store, sword through a steel belted tire. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly. Their hide is very good armor. 
leaving aside for a moment the fact that they are reasoning beings, which is probably easier to do since they actually, um, I, I didn't make a, a clear point of this, um, a an ovipositing in a non-sapient uh, creature tends to produce a non-sapient and therefore far less dangerous and less valuable to hire Zakai. Mm. Zakao. So they go after, you, you know, which usually means humans, one variety or another. Um, so, you know, I, I would simply say, do not have many tender feelings for the Zakai in that regard. Um, but the, the thing is that if you make armor out of them, it seems to make you more susceptible to some of the... Um, we we hear of things called talents in this. We hear of things called gifts, which seem to which which seem to defy anything vaguely like physics. the The locals seem to consider them magic and don't think twice about them. Um, the some there are one or two among the survivors who absolutely refuse to accept them out of hand. Then you've got some people who do until they actually see it in action, and then they get superstitious. <laughs> then you've got the folks who basically are sort of the jury's out, and just because it looks like magic doesn't mean it is. Certainly, you're going to see um, some some evidence, some some furthering of that inquiry here. But whatever it is, you tend to be more susceptible to that if you're wearing armor made out of zakai hide. So that creates both a curiosity amongst them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, it, it's also, it's, um, it's a frustration, you know, uh, in, in that that could be so much better for us, but apparently the thing that it makes you most susceptible to is losing full control of your own will. And this is the sort of thing that some of the locals are willing to trade away, but our survivors are not. And it creates another another sort of tension dynamic in the group. And um, but it also becomes a sort of for those who are a little bit more on the fence, they say, well, if correct, because they're they're having they haven't been able to test this themselves. But if the locals are correct, and they've been pretty much correct about everything else they've told us about the Zakai. Right. Um this is actually the beginning of a point of research. Why? How? What does it mean? And as we see later on and towards the end of this book, um, it's, it's as and as a matter of fact, when you think about what you saw even in the, the book before, there are things that certain of the very powerful Zakai can leverage uh, that allow them to, how can I put it? Um, they have eyes and ears where they are not. And that becomes a major tactical driver that our 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 heroes, protagonists, call them what you will. Um, not all their actions are heroic. Uh, um, do not understand, and uh, to their great peril on several occasions. And then they begin having to rethink pretty much everything in the in the towards the end of this book. Well, people are gonna have to buy it to find out right yeah yeah that's my that's my precise my my 
precision obliquity there for you. <laughs> now you mentioned a little bit, or you spoke a little bit about killer species, but what's next in the series from a thematic perspective? You know, where's it going? Where do you hope it goes? That sort of thing. I kind of know where it goes. Um, as a matter of <laughs> fact, very recently I had uh, a, a conversation uh, and I'll, I'll touch back on this in a second. There's a re so I had a Zoom call with Tony. David Weber was on that call as well. I'll circle back to that. Uh, mm -hmm. Consider that a teaser. Um, before we get to that, uh, one of the things that's going on at the end of this book, which has been, um, I don't want to spoil much, but this idea of this party, this group that's been traveling through 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 all sorts of places where they have not had the freedom to have relationships is one of the major things that changes in in this book. Um, and it gives me a chance to uh, explore, you know, explore things in the characters, which quite frankly, when you jump, when you're constantly jumping from one frying pan into yet another fire, um, there's not a lot of time for that. And that was certainly the case here. You also had a situation where when they were traveling in the fifth book, there were only three or four of them out of cold sleep at any given time. So you had the situation where all sorts of things disrupted any of the normative patterns of association that lead to the fruition of romantic relationships or the intensification of certain friendships or things like that. Once they are sort of, they know where their next meal is coming from and they feel that they are not just essentially a sitting duck for anything that comes along. They've also now been traveling together for months in a physical environment um, doing all the day-to-day -day things that people do. And they're surrounded by other humans to one extent or another um, mm -hmm. who are even more curious about them than the survivors are of the locals. Simply, and the reason for that is pretty obvious, you know, it's like everything is new to our survivors, right? But for the, for the locals... They're traveling with a bunch of people, which they are at pains to try to even explain how they could have the stuff they have, know the stuff they do, and and be and yet be out here fleeing across the wastes. You know, it, it's like it, it, it nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense to them. So they are intrigued, and it is that process of trying to find um, points in common. Uh, safe ways to navigate those because that's not a foregone conclusion um, and the mistakes and the commonalities. I think those are the things that that latter is the thing. Um, there are things that are, I think going to be common to humans uh, probably always have been probably always will be. And it was nice to kind of uh, explore and celebrate some of those in this book. So um, some of which are explored and, ex and celebrated through tragedy. Because because uh, tragedy as well as joy uh, comes from the same things in our in our human experience. They don't call it the veil of tears for nothing. Um, so that's um, that. And the reason I say that in relationship to your question about what's next is because mm -hmm. that's really just sort of we see we see the budding beginning of that towards the end of this book or as this book goes on and uh, more in store 
and I've been waiting for a long time to do that. Um, so, uh, so that's one of the things that's in store. Um, uh, what else is in store? Well, we for there's a whole other part of the book we haven't talked about, which is the the part that has um, the the folks who are trying to go and rescue Kane and crew. Um, mm -hmm who are seen in interludes, very brief interludes between the major parts of the books, and they're getting closer. Um, but they're way out beyond where, everything is guesswork now, where they are. That's that's the fastest way I can put it. This involves Andal, it involves Richard Downing, it involves Trevor Corcoran, um, and, and those lost soldiers that they did. And it also, by the way, reveals why the lost soldiers had to be left behind, where they were left behind on 55 Tori. Um, and and um, why the decisions, I'm, I'm really glad for the opportunity to tell that side of the tale um, because you see some of the same events, exact same events, but you see it not from the side of uh, Roger Murphy, Murphy's Lawless waking up and trying to make sense of all this. You see this from the side of people who are having to make the sort of decisions that that awaken them, get them ready, leave them behind. Um, and and the fact that this was not this was anything but a, a capricious decision um, and, uh, and, a, and a very, very grim one for those who were involved in the making of it. Um, but you'll also see by the end of uh, this book that it's getting it's getting pretty close. Uh, the uh, Murphy's Lawless as an arc is about to do this with the mm. as was always the case. And for those who've been paying attention in in Murphy's Lawless, there should be some things there which suggest that it could become a very important place in the future of the series. Yes. And for those who are paying attention to protected species and the main arc on Bactrigarian, um, once again, uh, this looks like it just might be a kind of important place. And one of the reasons might be, of course, why did the stricken Dornani ship not only manage to survive a misshift and come into space normal, but come into space in a solar system come in to, with a, 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 at a safe distance from a star and right at the shoulder of a planet with breathable oxygen and water. Probably not a mistake. The question is, mm -hmm. then how? And what does that signify? So um, the series is definitely going on in, in killer species. A lot of those questions, if not answered, um, the cone of uncertainty is going to begin to narrow. Um, what went on here? Precise information? No. But like I said, if right now the pious life of uncertainty is like this, probably mm -hmm. going to get to be about like that. But as you know, literally and figuratively, the devil is in the details. And uh, the details <laughs> continue to be a little bit elusive at times. Um but all shall be revealed, um, and that doesn't necessarily solve everything. Now, how many? I'm, I'm just going to ask all of the folks who are watching and listening to this still at this point uh, to think about how many times you say, "I really have to know X," and you learn <laughs> it, and then you say, "Damn, now that I know X, 
I got to figure out Y, Z, and a number. You know, it, it and it, if people have known, people have remarked on that pattern in my fiction, and I will say guilty as charged. I resemble, I mean, I resent that remark. Um, but uh, uh, so that's where the immediate future is going. Um, things that have been set up in these two books, things that have been set up in Kane's Mutiny, things that have been set up. Uh, it's been amazing to me that people haven't said, you know, when, when people are reading along or, you know, in a book and they go, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> that changes everything. I think what's happened in Murphy's Lawless is that the story of their survival has become perhaps so distracting or compelling that there are a couple of things which have been revealed and particularly in the soon to be released Admiral and Commander, which should be those what moments. So while mm -hmm. we're talking about next things that are going to happen um, in February, uh, the third edition of Fire with Fire, the first book in the series comes out. It has 20,000 extra words in it. Mm. Um uh, only about 5,000 of those, but they're kind of important ones, uh, are actually in the text themselves. There was There's um, additional material that's been added, mm -hmm. some of which gets into that and top, the entire topic of if not DNA, then what? Um, because that there's a news brief about that, um, about what's become of currency. How did the block, how did, how did the world of the late... 20th century, early 21st century uh, evolve into this sort of five block plus the macro, uh, the, um, the uh, mega corporations. Um, how did all that occur? So, oh, and then for those who like pictures, um, <laughs> way back when uh, sometime right, right about after I think uh, Trial by Fire was, Nebula, it was nominated, nominated for the Nebula, uh, I think Tony understood that probably this series wasn't going away anytime soon. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and at my, with me working with the artist, we had some uh, essentially engineering level uh, illustrations done of uh, what does a shift carrier look like is specifically in this case, the shift carrier uh, Commonwealth, which is the one that uh, Kane is trying to prevent from getting blown up in the in the in the early part of the first book uh so it's not the one that goes gets blown to pieces uh it is the one that that he is trying to save um and what i will i will just and all the way down to some of its subcomponents and a subcraft for it which uh the the um you'll see the actual uh engineering layout for the um not deck plan but all but you could infer deck plan easily enough for it in books three and four, uh, the, uh, the um, Corvette, the, uh, the Wolf class, uh, the courier, the, um, the, um, it was called the puller is the one mm -hmm. that, uh, that they is, is really their, uh, their sturdy. Uh, it, it's if, if the expanse has the um, Rosinante, they have the, uh, they have the puller uh, a whole lot smaller. Um and that is done out in detail, so people can see that. Um, so that's all coming out uh, in uh, in in uh, trade paperback in February. In April, it's been a very busy year for this series. I'll tell you that right mm -hmm. now. Uh, I'll I'll do the hit list in just a second. Um, Fifteen months, five releases. Uh, that's usually the stuff that happens with like direct to Kindle. Uh, not this time. 
Um, so uh, in April, Admiral and Commander comes out. That's with my my pal and uh, and in this case co-author um, Chris Kennedy, uh, mm -hmm. who, uh, who tells the story of um, when um, uh, Kevin Bowden has to step up from being essentially a fighter jock, Navy fighter jock, and becoming a full-on admiral. And uh, I'm going to leave the part of the commander aside. Let's just say that as a result of some of the things that um, Murphy has done and said, there are certain people among the, the, both the spin dogs and the rock hounds who've come to actually uh, think that he's more than just a military officer. And the word commander is the closest closest equivalent you can find to the word that they use in English. And I'm, that's as much as I'll say, but it's us, but nothing is the same in 55 Tory at the end of that book. Uh, all the chickens are coming home to roost. Don't miss it. Um, we had a lot of fun with it. Um, and uh, then, like I said, I was on the phone with Tony and on Zoom with Tony and uh, yes, yes, David Weber. Yep. Um, so as I've as I've said elsewhere, and probably people think this is in the realm of one day, but it'll never happen. There's been a signed contract out there since I think 2015. No, no, it was a, it was the proposal was there in in, uh, in concept. The, the contract was signed sometime now about five or six years ago. That. Um, I was going to do a, um, a uh, one collaboration with Eric Flint, which was triage, which would have been the second one in sequence, although that could have actually been two at the same time. Now they're, they're sequential. And one with, um, with uh, David, which originally I called Bastards, but uh, Tony was worried, and probably rightfully so, that it wouldn't necessarily sell in the bible belt too well so it it actually right. it, that made me go to a better title i think which is misbegotten um which is more truly expansively representative of what's going on in the in the book and it is uh, i i can tell you this much that now they occur one and two the one i was going to do with uh, eric uh uh i mean there's no there's no good there's no happy end to that story, but in in the world that took Eric away from us, the very best outcome occurred, which was that uh, David very graciously stepped forward and said that he's going to do that one too. So oh, we, are wow. two, um, we are going to do them. There's a good chance we'll do them back to back. There won't be a lot of time between them. They may come out bing bang. Um, and we are starting on them. I am actually uh, going to be starting to relay. He's, Anybody who's ever looked at the the blurbs on the books knows that uh, David has been an early and much much cherished adopter by me, um, who has been unstinting in his support and making it vocal and uh, and making it vocal uh, basically on all his platforms. I'm I'm uh, I could not be more grateful. And now he's coming to play in my universe. I played in his once. I, I did uh, wor uh, Worlds of Honor. Uh, I think it was vert, it was collection six. I want to say, um, but that's tiny. That was like a that was like a fifteen thousand word novella. He's coming on for two novels, and um, one of the characters. I'm not going to say who's. I'm not going to give away anything about that, except to say that one of the major characters. There are two major characters in this arc. Is Kane's son, Connor? Mm. 
uh, who is, we, we see him upon, uh, the last time we saw him in the series was in book five, when he is be, he has a, he's being, they, they're taking him out for dinner at a place in Annapolis because he's going in for the early summer session. Uh, he's, he's going to the academy. Um, this picks up his story pretty much there and the, and, and shenanigans ensue. Some of them are very dangerous shenanigans. Some become deadly shenanigans. Uh, it starts out on earth. It doesn't stay there by a long shot. And, uh, and I cannot wait to get started on it with David. Um, and, uh, so right now, one of the things that I'm doing is actually putting together David gave me uh, such a gift when uh, he was no longer able to do what was going to be. Now I'm going to jump to the ring of fire universe, 1632. He was originally the one who was going to be doing the Simpson novel in the new world. Uh, he was not able to do that uh, for a variety of reasons. We kept Simpson back. I picked up um, Eddie Cantrell and that became the, the, the genesis of uh, both um uh, Commander Cantrell in the uh, mm -hmm. in the in the New World, and um, and then the uh, uh, the second one, which was No Peace Beyond the Line, which was uh, which is I I was so that is the last book I did with Eric, and it was the only award he won. It was uh, we we it was we got a dragon for that one in the fall of 20, uh, 2020, Well, the early late summer of twenty twenty one, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two. That has to be twenty twenty one. And uh, it, can I tell a funny story? I know it has nothing to do with any of this, but absolutely. Eric was, and people who've seen me in interviews will yeah. know I told this one. And this is because I, it it allows me to bring Eric back to life for a few minutes or seconds, and uh, so I'll bore you with the story again. No, I've met Eric. I, I, no, I, no, I don't him, mean man. you. I'm yeah. talking to your audience now. I'm talking to your. Oh audience. well, they love him too. They love him too, Chuck. Come right. on. So, so everybody will will suffer with me on the way back machine because it's like going back in time and seeing somebody you've lost. Um, so Eric, as as people know, uh, it was was very often curmudgeonly uh, uh, figure, but was actually maybe one of the sweetest human beings, probably is one of the sweetest human beings I've ever met. Very, very giving, very, very supporting. The reason his name is not alone on more of his own books is because he just gave of himself to collaborators um, almost without counting the cost, I would say, um, in any regard of the word cost. Um, and so uh, so he, he always said, I don't care about awards. And um, and he said, the best award is the Ben Franklin Award. How many pennies you're holding? <laughs> uh, and uh, so so I you know I, I figured he'd be not very you know interested. So we won the award. It's like wow, well, yeah, that's good. Week goes by. So so um, so actually I have it here somewhere. Where is it? Oh yeah, it's right here. No, I did not plan this. So here's the award that Eric and I won. This is a Dragon Award. And you'll notice it's beautiful and it's made of glass. They're expensive. So mm -hmm. the thing is that usually it's one per customer. Now, ultimately, this did not become necessary. But originally, the thought was we, we figured we're going to have to pony up if we each wanted an award. So I figured I'd be the one to start that ball rolling eventually because I didn't give a damn about awards. Four days after the award, I see a phone call coming in from Eric. I said, Hi, Eric. How you doing? He said, what are we going to do about this award? 
The two of us, we need two. We're going to have to pay for it. We're out of range shipping. Those things are delicate. Rah, rah, rah. And he, he rolls on with this. And I'm like, Eric, I, I thought you didn't care about awards. <laughs> yeah, well, about the shipping. We got to be careful about that. <laughs> he was like a kid at Christmas. And it was, let me tell you, for somebody who did so much for me in so many ways, uh, it was lovely. Not that, you know, not that I gave it to him. We both wrote the book. I mean, he was very gracious about where the book came from and things. But the bottom line was I wouldn't have been writing that book and I wouldn't have had been doing that universe with him if it wasn't for him and giving me a whole lot of trust very early on, uh, deserve it or not. And um, and uh, so, so that was, uh, he was the guy that was going to be doing triage. Triage was going to be a kind of originally misbegotten and triage were going to be two separate stories that link towards the end of triage. Now they're sequential and I could not ask for, you know, I, I, I go from one, I stumble from one bit of good fortune into another in the case of if I have to lose Eric that I would give, I don't know what I would not give to have him back, but, uh, but to get, to get David to, to sort of, very graciously without any fanfare slide into that seat was um is just extraordinary so um right now uh the the reason i got into this and uh commander cantrell in the west indies and all that is because i was saying that uh that you know originally that was going to be david weber's novel so i came along and i did that and um and so uh he had already done all this, this huge amount of advanced work that was going to follow on from the, the Baltic War on the, sim, the ships that Simpson was going to make, uh, high weather ships. When I say he gave me background on it, I believe it is north of 40,000 words. Wow. You know, all of the stuff about the... Now, I, for a variety of reasons, I didn't go exactly with what he went with. Um, but that and the amount of back and forth we did certainly was very educational to me. Um, his knowledge of that period of naval affairs, the you know wind and wind and uh, and sail, is is you know ships of the line. Uh, that's uh, is is if he has few peers, if any, I would say. And so uh, so that's. Um, this is uh, now I'm having to do the same thing for him uh, because although he's a big fan of the series, he's read all the books, apparently some of them several times, there's a lot going on under the hood. Um, one of the ways in which I'm perhaps a little bit different from, I mean, we're different as authors in a lot of ways. I leave a lot of stuff that, that um, is, are the details that, that I think that David's found an audience who wants all of that stuff. My audience mm -hmm. seems to be a little less, a little, uh, probably a little more, um, they, they don't mind if I leave out some details, if it keeps the pace faster from their perspective of what makes for It also keeps some mystery in too. It helps with the mystery, right? Well, I, I think it does. And uh, it, it gives you, it gives you room um, mm -hmm. to, to flesh things out later on. But now I have to, it is, it <laughs> is perforce necessary that at least David Weber has to be completely demystified regarding what is going on underneath the hood, because of course he is starting with the the viewpoint. You know, one of the characters in the story is 
learning from the ground up. They're they're starting in the academy, you know. And so it's um, it's going to be uh, it's it's fun to to be sending him uh, in the near future all that stuff and to know that that's where we're going and it will be indeed. Um, I will I will just say this: the events in these two books to get, to answer your question, do I know what happens next? Are absolutely pivotal to books nine uh, ten through twelve. Um, which I have teased the the title elsewhere that if this is the species arc for books, I'm not going to give the individual titles because I don't want to commit to any of them yet, but that is called the Exarch Insurgency. Exarch spelled E-X-A-R-C-H. That is all I'm going to say about it, but it is going to be these two books, Misbegotten and Triage, which, which teed that up. All right, last question. Where can folks find protected species? Uh... Barnes and Noble, if you, but, but I, from what's going on these days, they hold a book like two weeks for after it releases and then bang, it's very often off the shelf. Uh, it's, it's, mm -hmm. so, but you can always go there and order it. You can order it from them online. I hear they do a better job than Amazon does. Of course, Amazon is a great place to buy it simply because if you do, and you might think to go back there. And as much as I, I love to aim people at Bain books, cause you can get it at Bain books is that the place where people go to, leave reviews is of course amazon so wherever you get it please do go to amazon leave a review because probably the the order in which you that you folks can make this series any series stronger more vibrant more have have more titles coming out is first buy the book yourself mm -hmm. word of mouth word of mouth sells books like nothing else it, it, it hands down somebody says because who are you talking to you're not stopping somebody on the street and saying hey i've read a great book recently you're you're going to get you know five extra feet of sidewalk to yourself if you do that it means you already trust the person and if they are ardent in saying i read this book and here's why you should that is far more likely to sell a person than anything any other form of contact they have but the next is uh, reviews and reviews, not so much even because of what you say, but because of the fact that, and there's a lot of folks that say the algorithms matter. They don't this, that, and the other thing. The bottom line is if you have more reviews, um, you just seem to come around more in the, in the cycle, yeah. particularly yeah. in the, if you liked a book by X, you might like this book by Y, um, even if it's not the general advertising flow. So that's a big deal. I, I'm going to make a, 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 an appeal now. I'm not going to name any names, but one of the people who gave this, this book has been so far, I, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of days. It's had, it has had, I think, it had about 70 to 80% fives and the remainders were four stars. One was a one star. This breaks my heart. Why was it a one star? The person really liked the book. They would have given it five stars, but it came with damage to the cover. Yeah, it's not your fault. Yep. And, and I, well, it's, and I understand it because really these aren't reviews in a lot of ways these are really customers that i mean the mere fact that the same they're applying the same mechanism to vacuum cleaners as to books tells you something right there of course why do you give a, a star to a vacuum cleaner it works as you know it's a utilitarian object it came and it works it works as you know or not it, it works as advertised or not a book is by definitely by definition a jump into the unknown and are you going to be are you going to be how satisfied are you having taken 
that jump into the unknown. If you feel like the book is a five-star book, please give it a five-star and make your, your, uh, your, your complaint about, about its, its physical delivery or things like that elsewhere because it kills us. You know, the bottom line is if you want people like me to keep writing those books that you would have given five stars to, give them five stars, please. And let your and let your rightful ire be known elsewhere. So that's my that's my PSA on behalf of all authors, because <laughs> I don't know any who feel differently than that. Well, plus with Amazon, if that happens, you just ship it back and they'll send you a nice pristine one. There you go. There you yeah, go. that's my advice. Yeah. So. Thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure. Everybody go out, buy Protected Species, five-star review. I know most authors say just ask for review. five stars, only the best stars. So thank you very much, Chuck. Thank you, Sean. It's been great being on again. And I guess I'll probably be talking to you before too long. Yeah, hopefully. Talk to you okay. soon. Take care now. Bye. Bye. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Tinker took the well-worn path down through the steep hillside orchard, carefully avoiding the beehives, to Tulu's store at the bottom of the hill. The store itself was a rambling set of rooms filled with unlikely items, many ancient beyond belief. One section was secondhand clothes, where Tinker often found shirts, pants, and winter coats. Some of the clothes were elfin formal wear that Tinker drooled over from time to time, but never found any reason to buy. Even secondhand, they were pricey. There was an odd collection of general goods, but the main focus of the store was food, often the rarest items to find in Pittsburgh. In an area behind the store, Tulu had an extensive garden and various outbuildings, a barn, a henhouse, and a dove coop. She had fresh milk, butter, eggs, freshwater fish, and doves all year. During the summer, she also sold honey, fruit, and vegetables. Tulu herself seemed to be an eclectic collection. Locals referred to her as a half-breed, left over from the last time elves visited Earth. Tulu certainly had the elfin ears, spoke fluent low and high elvish, and could be counted on as having in-depth knowledge of matters arcane. Unlike any full elf, she looked old, a face filled with wrinkles and silver hair that reached her ankles. Her elfin silks were faded and nearly threadbare, and she wore battered high-top tennis shoes. Whereas Lane was a known quantity, comforting in her familiarity, Tulu refused to be known. Asked her favorite color, it would be different each time. Her birthday ranged the year, if she would admit to having one. Even her name was unknown, Tulu being only a nickname. 
In 18 years, Tinker had never heard Tulu mention anything about her own parentage. If Tinker's grandfather was the source of Tinker's scientific thinking and Lane the source of all common sense, then Tulu was her font of superstition. Despite everything, Tinker found herself believing a found penny meant good luck, spilt salt required a pinch thrown over the shoulder to ward off bad luck, and that she should never give an elf her true name. Thinking about what she'd say to Oil Can about the NSA proposal and her date with Nathan, Tinker wasn't prepared for Tulu's reaction to recent events. You little monkey! Tulu swept out of the back room that served as her home, shaking a finger at Tinker. You've seen Windwolf again, haven't you? I told you to stay away from him. Tinker turned her back so she didn't have to look at the scolding finger. You've told me lies. No, I haven't. Only bad will come of this. He'll swallow you up and nothing will be left. You said he marked me with a life debt. And as Tinker said it, she realized that Tulu had told the truth. Only the half-elf had twisted it somehow. You didn't tell me that he was in debt to me. It's a curse either way. Tulu came to rub the mark between Tinker's eyebrows. Oh, he's got his hands on you now. The end begins. What do you mean? What I've said all along, but then you've never listened. You come asking again and again for the same story and go away not listening despite how many different ways I tell you. It can't be the same and different at the same time. Windwolf is dangerous to you. Tulu used the scolding finger again. Is that simple enough for you? I've tried to keep you hidden all these years from him, but he's found you now and marked you as his. Tinker realized suddenly that as one of the few people in Pittsburgh who spoke High Elvish, Tulu would have certainly been the one asked about Tinker's identity after the Saurus attack. I don't understand. Obviously, Tulu snorted and moved off to rearrange stock. From years of dealing with Tulu, Tinker recognized that the conversation had come to an impasse. She changed the subject to the reason she was at the store. I have a date with Nathan Chernowski. We're going to the fair. Ah, what is it with you in fire? What does that mean? It's dangerous to offer a man something he wants, but that can't be his. Why can't it be his? Tulu caught her chin. When you look at Chernowski, do you see your heart's desire? Maybe. You know your heart so little? I don't think so. You do this to satisfy that little monkey brain of yours. Curiosity is a beast best starved. Nathan wouldn't hurt me. If only the same could be said of you. Tinker stomped to the clothes, trying to puzzle that warning out. Was it something in the water that made older women impossible to understand? That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judgewitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week in the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.